mine attended our church, he and his wife, and he was a neat guy. He worked for the FBI. He told all sorts of stories to me, the ones that he was allowed to tell me anyway. He even gave me an FBI official cup with the official insignia on it, stuff like this. In one of our conversations, he told me one time, I said, we were just dialoguing, I said, boy, there's so many so much counterfeiting that goes on around the world. You know, how do you guys keep up with that? There's millions of permutations of American $100 bills. How, how do you guys do that? And he goes, oh, we don't study the fakes. We just study the real thing. But we become intimately familiar with every single detail on an American $100 bill. And so spotting a fake is easy. They can be faked 100 different ways, but... It matters most that you know what the original says so you can identify the false. When you see it, bank tellers are, are trained exactly the same way. They don't study the counterfeit bills. They, they study the real thing. That's what Paul does in writing this letter to the Colossian church. Uh, it was a growing uh, church, a young church, a small church, and yet even in its infancy, it had been infiltrated by false teachers. Uh, and so Paul writes to correct this heresy. It's a heresy that in the 2nd and 3rd century later on would be called Gnosticism. In the Greek it's called Gnosticism because you always pronounce the G and the N together. Gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. And what they were espousing is they would come into these younger and ungrounded and unfounded churches that weren't well steeped in God's Word. And they would come in and they would diminish the deity of Jesus Christ they would say, oh, you guys have to get in touch with this special knowledge. Oh, reading your Bibles, well, that's fine. But there is special knowledge available only to the novitiates. So if you hang out with us, we'll get you into the deep secrets of Christ that go way beyond the Bible. They started espousing a, a lifestyle that said, oh, you can't touch this and you can't eat this and you can't go there and you've got to celebrate these Jewish festivals. Even though you're a Christian, even though Christ fulfilled those festivals, you have to do all of these things to become novitiates in this. There's a rite of passage if you really want to know the deep things of God. There's nothing deeper than the Word of God that you hold in your hands. There's nothing deeper than the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to forgive mankind's sins. There is nothing deeper than that. And yet the cults have always preyed on younger believers, newer people that didn't really have a firm grasp on God's Word yet, and they are easy prey for the cults that are out there even to the present day. And when Paul writes to the Colossians here, he is under house arrest uh, in, in Rome, uh, he has completed his second missionary journey and now been accused by his Jewish brethren of, of introducing Christ and undermining historic Mosaic Christianity. And so Paul, is a, as a Roman citizen, is under house arrest. He's not in a dungeon, per se. He's under house arrest awaiting his trial before Nero, but his accusers never showed up. But for two years, he had time on his hands to answer all of his mail. Have you, ever, have you ever thought yourself so busy that you've prayed, Lord, I just need time to play catch-up. I need to catch up on all of my correspondence. I need to touch base with my friends. And God said, fine, and he puts you in jail. You say, well, that's not what I intended. That's not the way I thought you would do it. And I'm sure Paul was thinking the same thing. That's not what I had in mind. But he now had two years 
to answer all of the questions that the churches were sending to him. So like Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon, uh, he wrote that from this imprisonment in Rome about the year 60 A.D., uh, he never was accused. His accusers never showed up. So after two years, he was finally freed by the Roman government and set free. Go, uh, other people say that he went on a fourth missionary journey. Colossae, interesting city. It was a, had been a very important leading city in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was located on the Lycus River on the great east-west trade route that led from Ephesus all the way through the Aegean Sea and to the Euphrates River. But by the first century, it had become kind of a second-rate market town, a whistle stop. It's like in the old days back in the 50s, Highway uh, 66, Route 66 used to go from Chicago to L.A., you can't hardly find that road today. It's missing in great chunks, and there's bits and pieces of it everywhere. But in its day, it was the highway from Chicago to Los Angeles. Me and Kathy have taken that trip on motorcycle before and followed it as best we could. But once the interstate went in, all of those little towns along Route 66 dried up. And it's really a shame in one sense. That had happened to Colossae by the first century of Paul's writing, it had long been surpassed by its neighbors, Hierapolis and Laodicea. In fact, Paul himself had never been to the church at Colossae. During his three-year stay at nearby Ephesus, apparently a guy named Epaphras had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he lived in Colossae. And so he would go back, and then he shared his faith with these people, and so he's got a growing number of disciples there. He's got a little church going on in his own little house. You know, home church, they didn't have official church buildings back then. Nobody had the, the budget or time or space for that. And Christianity was under persecution in, in lots of places around the, the Roman Empire. But when false teaching started to creep into his home fellowship, he did what all of my home fellowship leaders do. When weird things happen, they come calling and say, Pastor Jim, help! You've got to do something about these false I don't know how to handle it. That's exactly what Epaphras did. He had a home fellowship going on, and Satan was trying to infiltrate with false teaching. So he ran all the way to Rome and said, Paul, could you, could you maybe just pen a quick letter that I could take back to address some of this false teaching that's going on? You could call it proto-Gnosticism. The, the cult of Gnosticism really wasn't a full-grown heresy until the second and third centuries. So this kind of heretical teaching was a, a weird mixture of Jewish mysticism, legalism, and what would later become known as Gnosticism, this emphasis on, on special knowledge. Uh, that kind of cultic teaching is still very much with us today. It was made up of six basic elements. Number one, a strict ceremonialism. Well, if you're Jewish, you can't eat pork unless you've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not Jewish. I can eat Jimmy Dean pork sausage all day long. I am free to eat bacon. Yes. They couldn't do that. But somehow or another, sometimes people think, well, if you're really godly, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. Well, I, I sometimes think that way. If you're really godly, you couldn't possibly eat fruitcake. 
There's something fundamentally, fundamentally wrong with that. I know some people like it. God bless them. I'm still praying for them. But there are some things I believe that you shouldn't eat either. They're just certainly not part of a natural man's diet. Secondly, they believed in this asceticism. There was such legal, oh, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. You go, wait, what, what happened to our freedom in Christ? They worshiped angels. It says in chapter 2 and verse 18, I know that many don't worship angels today, but we worship saints, we worship statues, we bow before people that are other than God or the Son of God or the Holy Spirit in some denominational circles, and that found had its roots in the heresy that was found at the Church of Colossae. They always, all cults have to diminish the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cultic teaching that had infiltrated this home fellowship did the same thing. Well, Jesus was fine. In fact, later on they would say, well, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism but left him at the cross. So he was born a man, he died a man, and in between he was the Son of God. Can I tell you, he's always been the Son of God. He will always be the Son of God. He's the Son of God today. But there are cultic teachings all around the world today that tend to diminish the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in response, elevates Jesus to a place of supremacy and glory. And boy, is it come out strong. We'll especially touch that in, in next week's lesson. They had this emphasis on secret or hidden knowledge. Well, the Bible's fine, but you also need our book. You need the Book of Mormon. Oh, the Bible's just fine. That's fine. But what you really need is the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. Well, your Bible may be fine, the Jehovah's Witnesses tell you, but what you really need is our version of the Bible, the New World Translation. Avoid that like a plague. It is so heretical in their, trans, their mistranslation of the Word of God. Secret knowledge, the Word of God, it, Paul will counter that in chapter 2, and he says, in Christ are hidden all of the secret treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. Don't need other cultic teachings and their special books in your Watchtower magazine and nonsense like that. Put it in the dumpster. Don't give it to the goodwill because somebody else will pick it up and may be tempted to think it's truth. Just burn it, dumpster it, whatever you want to do. Light your barbecue with it. I don't care. Reliance on human wisdom and tradition was a strong part of this Jewish mysticism, this Gnostic teaching where they held to the traditions of the elders and elevated it above the Word of God. I'll give you one for instance. you remember Jesus was constantly dogged by the religious teachers of his day and age? One day, on a Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, taking a few heads of grain, rubbing the husk off, and then eating the grain. It, it's nutritious. It's good for you. And the, the, the Jewish religious leaders that were following said, oh, no, 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 you're violating the traditions of the elders. He wasn't violating the Word of God. The Bible fully allowed people that were hungry to go through the fields or the vineyards and glean enough to eat and satisfy themselves. They couldn't harvest. They couldn't take home bushel baskets of this stuff. But that was kind of the social welfare program of the day. But what they confronted Jesus with is, you're not holding to the traditions of the elders. Had nothing to do with the Word of God. 
Jesus flew in the face of all of their traditions. They had a tradition that said, the Bible says that you can't work on the Sabbath, so they added regulations to that. That means you can't walk more than a thousand paces from your home on the Sabbath. You can't light a fire. You can't cook food. You got to eat it cold or prepare it the day before. And they added to the Word of God. Those were the traditions. And Jesus, time and time again, said, Fooey. It's not the Word of God. It was the traditions of the Jewish community. But Jesus came to set us free from that sort of legalistic nonsense. They actually said that on the Sabbath, you could not wear your false teeth because that was bearing a burden. Trying to eat without your teeth is to me a burden, but they couldn't see fit to see it that way. No, no, their tradition said, gum it and live with it. Made no sense. And so Jesus was violating their traditions all the time. This Jewish infiltration into the church at Colossae was the, exactly the same thing, where you can't do this and you can't do this. Religion is a long list of things you can't do. Jesus died to set us free. We're free to serve. We're free to, to be set free from our sins. We're free to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're free in Christ Jesus, not free to sin, free to serve the living God. That's what we're free to do. We've been set free from that old sin nature. But anytime there's a reliance on human wisdom and tradition, <clears throat> instead of the Word of God and the strength of His Holy Spirit, the blood of Jesus Christ, we're barking up the wrong tree. That was part of this mysticism, this heretical teaching. And sometimes all you have to do to refute heresy and false teaching is Simply teach the truth. You hold it in your hands. Jesus said, your word is truth, Lord. Sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. This is the word of God. It is supernatural in its origin. It is supernatural when applied to your life to change you. You'll read it a thousand times and see a thousand different applications of this living, active, breathing Word of God. It's different than any other book ever published because its author is the Lord God Almighty. And it's the only book he wrote. He didn't write the Koran, I'm sorry. He didn't write all of the Hindu writings. He didn't write the writings of, of Buddha. There is such a huge difference between the writings of God and the writings of false teachers that they're not worthy of, of being compared at all. I remember one time, there was a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate who ruled from 26 to 36 in Judea, the backwater of the Roman Empire, in an assignment that nobody wanted, a, known, a place known for insurrection. And they sent Pontius Pilate there to keep peace in that quarter of the Roman Empire. At Jesus' trial... He asked Jesus something that philosophers have been asking ever since. What is truth? What is truth? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth, the writings of God that we hold in our hands. This is truth. You need nothing else. The Holy Spirit will give you wisdom and discernment, insight and application if you ask Him to. 
You say, well, I've tried reading it, and I, I, I can't get through it. Where did you start? If you started in Genesis making your way through the back of the book, you probably bogged down somewhere around Deuteronomy or Leviticus when they were talking about mold and hair growing out of white patches on your skin and baldness, and, and you go, hey, yuck, don't like any of that stuff. Let me give you a clue. Start in the New Testament Gospel of John. Read a chapter a day. Keep going this way. Just a chapter a day. March your way through the book of John. Then you'll understand the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And all of the letters that come after that are simply the apostles writing letters of encouragement to the churches. It's really simple. But don't get bogged down in the minutia of the law. Jesus died to set us free from all of the law's requirements. He met the law, so we don't have to. We're not free to sin. We're free to, to serve. And if you've got the Spirit of Christ, you're going to keep the law already, aren't you? You love God. You want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. So you're not going to murder, rape, pillage, you know, things like that. That your common sense already says, I shouldn't be doing these things anyway. So just as bank tellers and FBI agents don't study counterfeit money, they study the original, the real. So we Christians, we don't study what Paul calls the doctrines of demons. We study the real Word of God. You don't have to be an expert on the cults to be able to minister to those guys. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You know the Word of God like the back of your hand. You'll know how to answer the cults when they come knocking on your door. We can love them into the kingdom of God. We can pray them into the kingdom of God. We can pray that God would open their eyes as we share the Word of God with them. It's like shining a, a searchlight on their path. Let's look at the text itself because it is glorious. Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. I like the way that they did things in the early church. You started off by telling people who you were. I hate getting a letter and not knowing who's writing me until the last page. But in Greek, you put it up front. I, I'm Paul. He's introducing himself to a church that he'd never met, he'd never preached at it. But it was always customary to put the author's name, the writer's name, at the very beginning of the letter rather than the end like we do. It makes more sense. It makes more sense to me. Paul had never visited there. But likely when he was teaching for three years at Ephesus, Epaphras got saved, went back home to Colossae, and shared the gospel and started up this little home church that was quickly infiltrated by these false teachers. So he hunts down Paul in Rome and says, can you help me? And he writes this letter that would have been read in the early church. Paul calls himself an apostle, one that is sent with a message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God makes men into apostles. It's not a title that you should ever take upon yourself. And to people that call themselves apostles throughout the church today, I would say, let me see you do the things that Paul did. Then I can believe you're an apostle. Raise the dead. Open the eyes of the blind. Heal the lame. And then perhaps I'll consider letting you have the title apostle. We shouldn't be quick to take titles upon ourselves. 
Oh, I'm an apostle. Oh, I'm a bishop. Oh, call me the right honorable reverend. Anytime I get mail that says, to the right honorable reverend James Albert Etheridge uh, III, uh, Esquire, I know that they don't know me from Adam. They don't know a thing about me. I'm not right. I'm not honorable. I'm nothing of those things, and I'm no reverend. Reverend means greatly to be feared. What shepherd wants that title? They're supposed to be shepherds shepherding the flock of God. The sheep should be quick to, to run down the shepherd and share things with him. But reverend, please, I'm not greatly to be feared. I serve one who is, but his name isn't Jim Etheridge. <laughs> I'm a brother in Christ, just like you are to me, a sister in Christ. But I love the phrase where he says, I was called to this task by the will of God. It's not a profession he chose. He didn't wake up one day and go, you know, maybe I'll go to seminary, try being a pastor for a while. If that doesn't work out, well, then I'll move to Las Vegas and see if I can't be a blackjack dealer. You know, maybe a firefighter, you know, brain surgeon. I don't know, just try this, try that. He was called to this by the will of God. And here's how you know that you're called. You're obsessed with it. You can't say no to it. It grips your soul. It drives your course in life. And it's all that you can think about. It consumes you. That's the call of God on your life. It is a passion not born of men, but born of the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who calls us. The good news is every single one of us is called by God where there are spiritual gifts that are given throughout the body of Christ that enable you to minister to other people supernaturally. You don't need to go get a college degree to do it. You just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And out of His strength and power and wisdom, you use that spiritual gift to minister to other people. You're called to do that. You're called to do something outside of yourself. You say, well, I'm called to be a housewife. I'm called to raise children. You're absolutely right. If that's what God has called you, that's wonderful. But it doesn't stop there. Those are things that the natural people of this world do. But the supernatural things have to do with being filled with His Holy Spirit, walking in obedience to His Word, talking to the people He wants us to talk to, praying for the people that He puts in our path that need prayer. It's a supernatural calling. You may be a great mom, a great dad. That's wonderful. That is a part of your calling, but not all of your calling. Because the natural world does, does those things. God has called us to, to a supernatural existence. And that's what Paul says, by the will of God. Let me ask you a question. How do you discern the will of God? How do you personally discern the will of God? How should you discern the will of God. Prayer. Ask. Ask Him. Ask Him what His will is. Ask Him where, when, how, what. All of those things. Ask. So we pray. But secondly, we consult the Word of God. What, what are the examples we find in Scripture? Thirdly, godly counsel. Don't ask your pagan friends. They may give you the wisdom of the world, but only a godly counsel will give you the wisdom of God. So get godly counsel, not the next-door neighbor that, you know, deals drugs on the side, but you think is a pretty cool guy anyway. Prayer, the Word of God, the people of God, 
kind of makes the church interdependent, not codependent, but interdependent upon you. Each one of us has a very unique calling of God. We're not all called to be apostles or prophets or pastor teachers, but we are all gifted. Romans 12 tells us that, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, Ephesians chapter 4. We're all called to pursue Christ and live a life that's pleasing to God, however. I think that's where the calling of God begins, seeking Him, you personally. He addresses them in verse 2, to the holy and faithful brothers and obviously sisters in Christ at Colossae. Holy and faithful. In the original, the word faithful there, its root word is pistis, which means believing. Those that are believing are what? Full of faith. So you would call them faithful. Faithful Christians are believing Christians, full of faith. Faith in who? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. And that's what he says to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. That's our real identity. Thirteen times in this brief epistle, he's going to remind you who you really are is not your job. It's not your occupation. It's not where you live or how much you make. Your real identity is who you are in Christ Jesus. Everything else is a secular designation. Men typically make the mistake of putting their self, sense of self-worth in what they do for a living. That may be what you do to keep beans and weenies on the table. That's not who you are. That's just what you do. And yet men consistently identify themselves. Well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a welder. I'm a this. I'm a that. What we should say is, I'm a Christian. I've been sent by God. Are you saved? Want to pray? I mean, be blunt, be bold, be right out there. And you can do that whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a welder, a ditch digger, doesn't matter. Because what you do for a living is not who you are. Who you are, 13 times, Paul will tell us, is a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. That means that there's an inheritance waiting for me. I got the richest father in the universe. I'm in line for that inheritance. I don't know what you got waiting for you, but I got a huge, huge inheritance. I don't know what it is. Don't care. As long as he's in it, I, I'm, I'm all up for it. In Christ. Can I tell you, you say, well, I have faith, Pastor Jim, but what's your faith in? Your youth, your job, your expertise? If you're counting on your expertise to get you through life, let me ask you this. Of all that can be known in the entire universe of that which you know best, what percentage do you know? You feel like an amoeba yet? You should. At your very best, at your very best, your particular area of expertise, of all of that particular area that can be known in the universe, what percentage do you know? Infinitesimally small. That's why you can't get your sense of self-worth from what you do. You're not the best who's ever been at what you do. And of all that can be known in the universe, you know some infinitesimally small amount. It should humble you. Realize your identity is not what you do or what you know. It's who you know. It's who you know. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? I don't care what your hobbies are. I don't care how many degrees you have after your name. I don't care how much money you make, where you live, or what you drive. All of those things are of zero consequence. By the way, how many of those things are you taking to heaven with you? Huh? Nada. Zip. Zero. That which you invest so much of your life in is, get this, a total waste of time. 
You say, well, that's terribly defeating, not if you know who you are in Christ. That's my identity. That's who I am. It's not what I do or hobbies or any of those other things. When I stand before the Lord in judgment day, can I tell you the only thing that's going to matter is Jesus. Jesus in your relationship to Jesus Christ. I can guarantee you this. On the day you die, God will not ask you, well, how much money did you make? How smart were you? Got a degree? Two? Ten? How righteous and holy are you? He's not going to ask you what you did for a living. He's not going to care about the things that you acquired. It's only one issue when you stand before him. How well did you serve Jesus? How well did you bow the knee to the God who created the universe? He doesn't care about all the stuff that the world cares about. Don't let it become a preoccupation with you. If you're going to obsess with one thing in life, can I? it should be Jesus. It should be Jesus. Over and over and over again, I find throughout the Bible, on every single page nearly, seek the Lord. That's on you. It doesn't say seek your hobby. It doesn't say seek to be rich or seek to be a, have a big house or a person of influence. It doesn't say that. If we chase after those things, we are in frank disobedience to the Word of God. What are you pursuing? Is it of spiritual and eternal worth? If not, you should reassess quickly. Reassess. What are you living for? What are you putting your hope into? What, what obsession do you possess if it is something besides the pursuit of God? It is a misplaced obsession. He says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Ooh, Paul's a praying man. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Doesn't say on earth, does it? In heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all the truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Hmm. Go back to verse 3 for a second. We always thank God. Can I tell you, if you're a faithful Christian, that's what we saw in verse 2, if you're a faithful Christian, you're a thankful Christian. Give thanks to God. If you're a faithful Christian, you are a praying Christian. That's what faithful and thankful Christians do. Nearly every one of Paul's letters to the churches begins with thanks and praise. Each of the churches is unique, has a different personality and, and makeup, but I think that we should make it our constant habit to always thank God in all circumstances. All circumstances. It is not because all circumstances are wonderful. We can give thanks in all circumstances because of the promise of God. Romans 8.28 says, all things. How many things? All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purposes. That's you and me. All things work together for the good. He didn't ask you to figure out how. 
That's the biggest mistake that you and I make. Well, why did this happen to me? Did I deserve it? Was I in sin? Don't go there. All things work together for the good, God says. He didn't ask me to understand that. He did ask me to accept it by faith. I just got fired from my job. All things. Don't try to figure it out past that. Don't overthink this. Boy, that's our tendency, isn't it? Well, why did this happen to me? Why, why, why? Every time you ask why, it undermines the sovereignty of God. Drop the question. Just say, you know what you're doing. I don't understand it. But you didn't ask me to understand it. You just asked me to believe your promise. I stand on the Word of God. I will pray. I will seek your face. I will claim this promise that all things work together. I believe you said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's what faith is. Faith isn't a feeling. Oh, I'm all depressed because I lost my job. Okay, you got a feeling. Great. Take some Tums. You'll be fine. Trust God. All things work. Do you believe that? You believe it now if your life is okay. You don't believe it this morning if your life isn't turning out the way you planned. Did you catch that? You planned your life to turn out one particular way. And most likely, God had a different plan. Disappointment is inevitable when you put your plans ahead of God's. Instead of simply going with the flow. How many of you have ever taken a whitewater rafting trip in Colorado? Could I see your hands? Half scary, half thrilling, isn't it? You go down Browns Canyon, it's one thing. You go under the Royal Gorge, that's a whole nother rafting trip there. That's where you put on helmets because you're about to die. <laughs> you fall out of this raft, they'll pick you up somewhere uh, out on the plains. Scary. But every time I looked back at the guy with the oars in his hand steering this boat, he wasn't upset. I didn't know what rocks lay around the corner. I didn't know if we were going to flip the raft or where we were headed. I didn't even, my only concern was when are we ever going to eat? You're rowing and rowing and rowing, and pretty quick you've worked up a hunger. But I look back, and this guy's as cool as a cucumber. And we got waves, and we got rocks. It's just insanity. Go over a waterfall, he doesn't even blink. And I'm thinking, what's his problem? Did he, like, take a quaalude or something this morning? What, what's it? And, he, and I, so I was sitting right next to him, and I says, you're awfully cool. And he goes, been doing this all my life, been down this river a thousand times. Hmm. Remember when a storm blew up in the Lake of Galilee and they, the fishermen that had lived on that lake their whole lives were freaking out. And they look back, and who's in the back of the boat asleep on a cushion? But Jesus. Then they said the stupidest thing that ever came out of a human mouth. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? He's got, oh, please, give me a break. Jesus, of course he cares. Is he upset? He's taking a nap not upset. He's trusting. Why? Been down this river a thousand times. You don't know what's around the next curve in life. God does. Stop trying to figure it out. Go with the flow. Trust the guy in the back of the boat. He's the son of God. He knows what he's doing. Of course he cares. Don't you have faith enough to believe that? It only takes a little bit of faith in a great big God, to have a wonderful outcome. Don't try to 
think it through or have it make sense in your mind. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's an old hymn. For those of you that grew up in Calvary Chapel, you have no idea what that is. That's called a hymn, an old song from many generations past that has wonderful characters. We, we need to do those from time to time just to remind us of those that have gone on before us. I am in love with, look at, look at verse 4, I'm in love with the things that the Colossians were famous for. They were famous for their faith, love, and then verse 4, their hope. <laughs> what are you famous for? Your faith? Your love? Your hope? What are you famous for? Can I tell you this, as gently and as lovingly as I can, if you're famous for something besides Christian faith, love, and hope, you ain't famous at all. And I don't care if your name is Bill Gates or Elon Musk. If you don't have Jesus Christ, then you don't have the faith and love and hope that the Colossians were famous for. Man, that's what I want to be famous for. That pleases God. I'm obviously famous for my wardrobe. I'm famous for my rubber shoes that have holes in them so they don't stink as bad. I'm famous for my blue jean collection. I'm famous for lots of things. What I want to be famous for is my faith and love and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll consider my life a success if on my tombstone... Someone will engrave, he loved God. He just loved God. That's all I want to be known for. It doesn't matter what I did or what I acquired or didn't acquire. And you can have my wardrobe. You can fight over it. Who gets those plaid shirts of his? I don't know. That's fine. You can have them. Won't need them where I'm going. The gospel is what they had latched onto, the good news, and it is Christ Jesus, what he did. The forgiveness of our sins, verse 5, tells us here. This hope that is stored up for us in heaven, verse 5 says, that we've already heard about the word of truth, the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins so that we don't have to die in our sins. It's all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You died on the cross. Yeah, we celebrated that. Good Friday serves. He rose from the dead, factually, literally, and actually. We celebrated that last week at Easter. Can I tell you what? He's coming again. And that should be the hope of the church, knowing that after this brief life is over, there's an eternity to be played out. There'll be a hundred million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, nonillion, decillion years is just going to be a eye blink in light of eternity. So think through carefully what you obsess with in this world. The prince of this world will dangle many carrots in front of each of us on the end of a stick. Don't bite them. Don't chase after that stuff. You're smarter than that. You're better than that. The goal of the gospel, look at verse 6, that has come to you, this gospel has, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit that is, it's making disciples. The church is growing. It has been growing ever since. Bearing fruit 
and growing, just as it has been doing amongst you since this day you heard it and understood it in God's grace and all of its truth. But the idea is that fruit should grow. Disciples in Christ Jesus should keep on growing, should keep on growing. That's what fruit does naturally, doesn't it? He also speaks there, I believe, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, you know this. We've only said it how many times from the pulpit? The fruit of God's Holy Spirit, once He takes up residence in my heart and yours, here's the fruit that He plants, and it's in seed form. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, some of you, that seed has been dormant a long time. Your spouse asked me to bring it to your attention. But all of us should earnestly be asking our Heavenly Father, Lord, mature this seedling fruit in my life of love and joy and peace and patience. Um, Mature that fruit of my life, Lord. I want to be famous for the fruit of your Holy Spirit. Not famous for me or my hobbies or my earning income or my house or anything else. If I want to be famous, it's going to be because I'm a disciple of Christ. And the best testimony of the church in the world today is the people that are filled with love and joy and peace and patience. Notice the word knowledge was not in the list. And yet people esteem that like the Greeks did of bygone generations where they exalted philosophy and the acquisition of knowledge. Can I tell you, any pagan can go to college and make straight A's, but it takes a child of God under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to be growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it should be your pursuit and mine to keep growing in those things. That's the spirit, because in light of eternity, I mean, when Jesus comes back, all of the days for getting godly are going to be over. Your eternal reward fixed for all eternity. The things that you have done in the flesh will be destroyed. And only the things that we've done in the power of His Holy Spirit will remain. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, these gospel truths. Our dear fellow minister, servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Interesting name is a shortened masculine equivalent of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. It's in the masculine form here, but he obviously is a Greek, not a Jew. He doesn't buy into Jewish mysticism and ritual and legalistic nonsense. He doesn't do that. He believes in the freedom in Christ Jesus, but his name reminds us of what he was saved from, belief in false gods and the pursuit of sensual pleasures. He was delivered from all of that by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes up to Rome and asks Paul, could you advise me on how to handle this growing heresy at my house church? He then went back to Colossae with this letter, this epistle, and And then, no doubt in my mind, was an evangelist to the nearby communities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Fruit was growing in his life. He was growing as a disciple in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. It is fascinating to me, always has been in Galatians chapter 5, where it lists the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
he lists the deeds of the flesh before that, but you don't need to rehearse those because you already know what your life looked like when you were living for the flesh. That's not you anymore. That guy died. You've been made alive by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Act like it. There's an old nature, an old corpse that had a pulse at one time that drove my obsessions with the things of this world. I've been delivered from all of that. Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of my heart, planting a new kind of fruit that isn't so selfish and self-centered. It's not about me. It's about Him. But I love verse 8. He told us of your love in the Spirit. In Galatians 5 where it says the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the word fruit, unlike the English language, which is sometimes pretty pathetic, if I say fruit, you don't know whether I'm talking about fruit singular or fruit plural. We use the same word for both. The Greeks didn't do that. But it did say clearly in the original language, the Greek of this passage in Colossians and in Galatians, the fruit singular of the Holy Spirit is love. Everything else flows out of that. If you love God, it'll be seen in your loving man. But you can't love man without loving God first. It's an exercise in frustration and futility. You say, well, I have a hard enough time loving my family, loving my dog, let alone loving my enemies like Jesus told me to. You need a fresh baptism of God's Holy Spirit. Surrender, submit, get on your knees, put tears in your eyes, and say, Lord Jesus, would you fill me with fruit that I don't possess? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not your fruit. It's His. Ask. Have Him planted in your life. Have him, ask Him to change your priorities, and He will. Otherwise, you live for a very temporal world that will soon pass away. There is nothing that you've acquired, nothing that you have acquired that will go with you into heaven. You need to think that through. It's very temporary existence we have short-term on this earth. I want to be, I want His love to permeate my heart. Do you love God? Do you read your Bible like you love God? Do you pray like you love God? Do you sing in praise and worship services like you love God? Let me tell you something you didn't know. Praise and worship has nothing to do with the timber of your voice and everything to do with the attitude of your heart. You, individually, ought to be the loudest worshiper on Sunday morning. Shame on you if you're not. We say, Pastor Jim, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Use both hands. It's a heavy bucket, I got you. But the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Think about this. He must like your voice. Maybe nobody else does, but he must like your voice or he'd have given you a different one. He just wants to hear yours. Your voice is totally unique to anybody else's. doesn't matter if you can carry a tune in a bucket. doesn't matter if you can hold pitch. What matters is what comes. Didn't Jesus say what comes out of the mouth really comes out of the heart? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the volume of your praise and worship tells everybody around you where you're at with Jesus at any given moment. Your level of enthusiasm there's an interesting Greek word. Tells people everything they know about where you're at with the Lord. Enthusiasm in the Greek, theos is the root, which means what? In God. A Christian who is in God is an enthusiastic Christian. If you don't like praise and worship, 
have your heart checked with a cardiologist immediately. I want my heart always to be soft and tender toward the Lord. I sit on the front row so I can bellow and nobody looks twice at me. I let her rip. Sometimes Jenny, my daughter, plays keyboard up here and and pups, my my son-in-law said, man, all we could hear out there was you, Jim. And? So a a better question is, how come the congregation isn't out singing one man on the front row? God gave you lungs. Use them. God gave you a voice. Use it for His glory. Use use it to praise Him and to worship Him, to pray, to sing His praises. Why don't you? I'm self-conscious. It's not about you. It's not about you. And if somebody nudges you and says, boy, you can't carry a tune in a bucket, say, that's great. I'm not singing to you. I'm singing to the Lord. And it's a joyful noise unto Him, and He loves His people. It says that He inhabits the praises of His people. Isn't that cool? Every time you sing, he inhabits the prayer. He goes, oh, that's my son. That's my daughter. Oh, it blesses God when we bless him in, in praise and worship. Think that through between now and next Sunday. There will be a test. I will be listening. I want you to sing loud. Why? Because I know you're an enthusiastic Christian. So be less concerned with people around you and more concerned about who we're addressing. You want to live a life that's pleasing to Him? A life of total surrender is a great place to begin. May the joy of the Lord be yours in full abundance as He makes His perfect will known to you. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you at Colossae, we have not stopped praying for you. Oh, I like Paul. He's a praying man. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. Boy, you want to kind of highlight that one this morning. God wants to reveal His perfect will to you. He wants to guide and direct you. That's what shepherds do with their sheep. They lead the way. Sheep aren't beat. They're showed the way by the great shepherd that goes before them. It tells me in verse 9, we should always pray for one another. Paul was praying that God would fill the church with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Have you asked God to fill you with the knowledge of His will? I want to know what your will is, Lord. Where would you have me go? What job would you have me take? What relationship to be a part of or which relationships do I need to no longer be a part of that are unhealthy and indeed toxic? Biblical knowledge and wisdom are practical. They encourage godly living. Here's the plan in part that God has for you. Can I just share this with you? If you're here this morning, you go, man, I'm clueless. I have no idea what God's will for my life is. I just feel like I'm wandering down the stream of life, and I don't know what I'm going to bump into or or where it will go. Let me encourage you with Jeremiah 29. Verses 11 through 14, and feel free to write that down in the margin of your Bible somewhere, because this is God's promise for you. For I, God, know the plans that I have for you. He doesn't say you know the plans. It says that He knows the plans that He has for your life. Your job is to find out what that plan is, but He already got a plan for you. It's not a surprise to Him. 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And you should say, yes, I want that. I want God's perfect will for my, my life, not his permissive will. I don't want to see how stupid I could get and still make it into the kingdom of God. I don't want to be self-absorbed, self-obsessed with the things of this world. I want to know what God's perfect will is because it's a will that will prosper me spiritually. It won't harm me. Plans that will give me hope and a future. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. Verse 12, then God says, you will call upon me. Do you? God just said, this is on you. If you don't seek me, you won't find me. It puts the responsibility of doing the seeking upon us. You will call upon me, verse 12, and come and pray to me. And then God says, I promise I'll listen. But if you're not praying, all bets are off. If you're not seeking, don't be surprised when you don't find. If you're not prospering spiritually, whose fault is that exactly? Draw close to God, James says, and he will draw close to you. But notice that he's done his part. He expects us to do our part, to draw close to him. How do we do that? He tells us this. Verse 13, you will seek me. That's the first thing to do. And find me when you seek me with, oh, some of your heart, <clears throat> haphazardly, if I have time, if my hobbies don't get in the way, if it doesn't clog my social calendar, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. We live in a day and age where many Christians aren't seeking, so they're not finding. Oh, they go to church, they love God, they give Him lip service, they just don't act very godly. They're just not much filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They're not asking, they're not seeking, they're not knocking. They're kind of just taking the grace of God for granted. Oh, God's okay with me pursuing everything this world has to offer. No, He's not. You're self-deceived. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, but only when you seek him with all of our hearts. Tell you what, that has become the singular pursuit of my life. I find things that used to entertain me dropping away like carrot peelings. <laughs> things of this world, don't need that. He turns carrot over, Jimmy, you don't need that either. Yeah, that, yeah, that needs to go. This part here that used to be a tat, yeah. God needs to go. You go, there ain't much carrot left. <laughs> it's all about God. I must decrease and he must increase. So don't fight him when he's got a carrot peeler in his hand and he's headed for you. Don't grumble and grouse when he takes the things of this world from you. He never promised you the things of this world. The prosperity that Scripture talks about cannot have a dollar sign attached to it. It is spiritual prosperity. He's already told the church at Colossae, it's stored in heaven for you. It's not on earth. But we're always, your flesh wants it. Oh, I saw a stupid t-shirt years back that said, Lord, let me prove to you that winning the lottery wouldn't change my heart. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. 
in the 35 years I've been pastoring this church, I have seen people come into huge amounts of money from time to time. Not a one of them serves God anymore. Not one. There are no exceptions where they've come into tremendous amounts of money suddenly to a person. Every one of them has walked away from the Lord. I pray that God would never curse you with more money than you could spiritually handle. The, the Proverbs said, Lord, don't give me too much. I might become proud. Don't give me too little or I may be tempted to steal. Just give me my daily portion. That'll be just fine, Lord. That's a good prayer. I want to live a life. Let's read from verse 10 to where we're going to finish up today. And we pray this, verse 10 says, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. Does everything you presently pursue, does everything you pursue please the Lord? Does everything you do that you pursue, does it please the Lord? Or does it feed the flesh? And which do you think that we should be doing these last days? Your spiritual men and women. Satan knows that a watered-down church is no threat to his kingdom of darkness. So he's going to do everything he can to make lukewarm Christians out of every church attendee throughout the world today. The goal of knowing Him, look carefully at verse 10. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy, Lord, may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. The goal uh, of knowing His will through spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's to help us live a life that's worthy, that's pleasing to Him. Seek to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Look at every activity you do and say, is this pleasing to the Lord? You can even do the right activity with the wrong motive, and it's not pleasing to the Lord. So attitude is important as well. Live a life that's bearing fruit in every good work. Secondly, he says there in, in verse 10, what fruit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. A life that's growing versus a life that is stagnant or regressing. How do you grow and mature in the knowledge of God? I thought you would never ask. The Word. The Bible. Start in the Gospel of John, chapter a day, keep going to the right. Okay? Not difficult, not rocket science. If you forgot those instructions the first time, they bear repeating. Start in the Gospel of John, read a chapter a day, keep moving to the right. What happens when you hit maps in the back? Then you're ready, perhaps, for Genesis. Feel free to read a chapter in the Old Testament and a chapter in the New Testament. It's profitable. It's all the Word of God. How do I grow and mature in the knowledge of God? Prayer. Secondly, the Word, and then prayer. God wants praying children. Pray at all times, in all occasions. I, I love that about my Kathy. She constantly, wherever we're at, encourages me to pray. Pray for that person. Grab that person. Just, just pray on them. Love on them. Thirdly, fellowship with other believers. It's vital. It was in the early church. It is today. Fourthly, worship. It's not just singing songs. Well, it's not my uh, kind of music. I only prefer two kinds of music, and that's country and Western. Okay. It's not about you. 
It's not about what genre of music. It's not about any genre of music. It's about worship of the living God. You don't even need a musical tune to carry. You could do it a cappella. But don't ignore worship. Live a life worthy, a life that's being strengthened with the power of God. Living a worthy life is a life that's full of endurance and patience and joy and thankfulness as he bears out next. Being, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Spiritual strength and vigor, endurance and patience is what we're looking at. So that you may have great endurance and patience. Mm. That's living a life worthy. Endurance and patience. God gives power according to verse 11. It's, it's not physical power, it's spiritual power. And it, it echoes a promise that was given in the Old Testament in Isaiah 40. And I just love it. It is majestic and poetic in the King's Version, but I trip and stumble over it as many of you do with the ancient 1611 uh, King's English. But in more modern vernacular for here instance in the NIV, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, spiritual strength. That's what Paul is talking about in this Colossian epistle. And he increases the power of the weak. Verse 30, even youths grow tired and weary. You've always wished, oh, if I could have the strength that I had when I was a teenager. But it, it, that bird left the nest. Can I tell you that? She ain't coming back. <laughs> she ain't coming back. I, I watched my two grandkids at a testing tournament yesterday in, in their little martial arts school, and their poor little faces got so beet red. I mean, their taskmaster was just ruthless. Uh, and they tired themselves out, and I, I gathered them up in my arms afterwards, and I thought, and I said to them, I says, I thought you guys never get tired. They do. Even youths, Isaiah says, grow tired and weary. And young men sometimes are so tired, so weary that they stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, who continuously continue hoping in the Lord, it's a present active participle. You keep doing it. They will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isn't that a glorious promise? Isaiah 40, oh, read it in several different translations because it ministers to my soul. Endurance, why is endurance necessary? Endurance is necessary to get you through what you're going through. That's all endurance is, that's why you need it. And every single one of us has a different cup of tea, don't we? Different kettle of fish that we've got to carry through this life. Physical infirmity or spiritual attack or depression or 10,000 other issues. But endurance, spiritual endurance given us by the Lord to those that seek Him earnestly. He gives us the strength, the endurance necessary to get through what I'm going through. Whatever that might be. Isn't that profound? <laughs> endurance is what's necessary to get you through what you're going through, and doing it with patience. Why did you say it that way, Pastor Jim? 
Because patience is doing it with perseverance and not complaining. And not complaining. Why? Because the Lord is my strength. He is my shepherd. What I go through, okay, I may not like it, but he's got his sovereign reasons and purposes. He goes on as we finish up our reading this morning, Colossians 1, back in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Give thanks to God for what He's going to teach you through the trial that you're going through. Give thanks that trials don't last forever, but the child of God does. Give thanks for the fact that your eternal destiny is secure and no force in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can keep it from you. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul would tell the church here, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Didn't say be thankful for the hurt, the pain. That's not what he said. But give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How? By knowing Romans 8.28 that we went through before, that in all things God works together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his person. I can thank God for that. I can thank God for it, not for the pain, hurt, trial, or inconvenience. I can give thanks for what he's going to teach me, the fact that it's not permanent. This too shall pass. Whatever you're facing this morning, the hardest trial that, that, that you have facing you today, this too shall pass, I promise. It will not chase you into eternity. Give thanks for what lies ahead all the way into eternity. Give thanks for the blood of Jesus Christ. Give thanks for His love, His grace, His mercy, the 10,000 other things that are gifts given to the children of the living God that seek Him. Verse 13, as we wrap it up, for He has rescued us. Here's a good reason to give thanks. If you have trouble thinking of something you should give thanks to God for, try this one. Verse 13, He has rescued us from the dominion, the power of darkness, Dominion, that's what we, we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to the selfish desires that we have. I want, I, I, I. That's the same sin that, that first struck the universe when Satan fell from power. It was all about him. I will set my stars, myself above the stars of heaven. I will make myself like the most high God. I, I, I. Can I tell you the biggest problem most people have as they get older, especially as they have Eye problems. Eye problems. It's not about you and me. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Don't be egotistical. Don't be maniacal. Don't be a harsh dictator. Be gentle and loving and kind with those that are around you. Don't be harsh. Jesus isn't with us. Be filled with the fruit of the Spirit of God, love and joy and peace, and patience. He loves you so much. Your home is not a happy home when you're demanding your own way. But you already knew that, didn't you? You may have just thought about that on the way to church. So, did my wife rat me out in the parking lot? <laughs> no, you're made of the same weak flesh that we all are. We all have these struggles that we need to lean on God to get past he has rescued us, past tense. He has already done this for us. The dominion, the rule, the power of darkness. The fourth reason to give him thanks, he's brought us then into the kingdom of the son he loves. I'm a child of God. I'm going to be a part of his kingdom, and that is glorious. And verse 14 gives the fifth and final reason to give thanks for God. In whom, the son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
redemption originally was a slavery term in first century Roman culture. It meant that you were a slave and you were on the auction block and somebody bid for you and purchased you off of it. That's what Jesus did for us. You and I were sold as slaves to sin and selfishness, self-obsession, senses of self-worth. Everything bad in this world starts with the word self. And if you didn't notice, the first or the middle letter in the word sin is what? I. Self-centeredness, that's what it is. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I've been bought off the block. I've been delivered from the penalty of sin by the payment of that ransom. Jesus paid the price for me. He shed his blood that I can live not for me, not for this world, but for God and his purposes. Because Colossians has already told us, God has a calling on your life and mine. Don't let the enemy rip that off from you. That's your identity. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. He's got a plan for your life that is more wonderful than anything you could think of. It all begins with submission to him. When Christ died on the cross, he took my place. It was a substitutionary death. Jesus took my place. He took yours. Wages of sin is death. But Jesus didn't sin. You have. You and I should have died. And if you think about that long enough, it'll bring a tear to your eye and gratitude to your heart. And in praise and worship, you'll just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for paying a price that, that I never could. Thank you, Jesus, for being my substitute. And notice that in verse 14, the, the word sins is plural, the forgiveness of sins. How many of your sins have been forgiven if you're a child of God? Past, present, and future. All of them. I'd like you to stand with me as we close in prayer and the praise bands are going to come up and give you one last opportunity to praise the Lord who died to save you, who has a plan for your life and a calling upon your life, and that if you will just ask Him and seek Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, He will reveal to you, oh, how He loves us. Oh, how he 